0: The John Morris Show Episode 67 7654321 You'll never have the secret <laughs> Oh, this you crazy mother You are now listening to the John Morris Show. My name is John Morris, army veteran turned freelance web developer, and each week I bring you a fresh look into the latest news, advice, and next steps for the self-made web designer and developer to help you reach your dream of coding for a living faster. Thanks for giving me some of your time today. Now, let the episode begin. I'm super excited to say that this episode is sponsored by TopTal. Now, finding and hiring talented developers is really hard. Not to mention, after the large piles of resumes and profiles you have to sift sift through, once you find a reasonable candidate, it's difficult to evaluate a developer's skill unless you're a developer yourself. But TopTal makes it easy. TopTal is a large network of the top 3% of software developers in the world. And to be accepted, applicants go through a rigorous screening process that tests technical expertise, problem-solving ability, communication skills, and more and the acceptance rate is just 3%. TopTal's team of engineers meets with you to understand your needs and handpicks just a few developers from their network for you according to your needs. Once you interview a developer, you can start working with them on a full-time, part-time, or hourly basis for as long as you need. It's very flexible. In fact, they've been so successful that they offer a no-risk trial period for all engagements. If you're not satisfied, you don't pay. And thousands of companies including Airbnb, JP Morgan, Zendesk, and more have turned to TopTal when they need developers because TopTal allows them to hire rapidly, with confidence, and hire only the best. So go to johnmorrisonline.com TopTal, that's T-O-P-T-A-L, today, to start working with top-tier developers. John Morris Show listeners will receive one week of TopTal development credit and a no-risk trial period for up to two weeks. So go to johnmorrisonline.com/slash/toptal now to sign up. Oh, and for all my developer friends, this is a network you want to be on. Forget having to compete with millions of other developers in those open networks. Get on Toptal and place yourself in the top three percent of software developers in the world, and let the projects come to you. You can visit johnmorrisonline.com/slash/toptal and click on the Apply as a Freelancer button to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The John Morris Show. I am your host, John Morris, and this is episode number 67. Now, I've got a really good show for you today. I'm excited about this one. In the trend section, I'm going to be talking about this trend that I've seen, and I think others have seen as well, and that is the advancement or the growth of webbed website building or application building tools that are out there you may have seen things the common ones you could think of are, are the CMSs like wordpress and joomla and the others that are out there there's also within those uh frameworks or those systems there's other tools for example i recently emailed about one uh, about one called layers that's kind of a page building tool you know, there's there's just a number of other ones that are coming out that are are really kind of site builder type tools, and I wanna talk about you know i get I get emails from people where they are a little bit afraid of of that kind of development so I'm gonna talk about why you shouldn't be afraid of that and some things you can do to prepare yourself for that trend because I do think it is a trend I do think we are moving that way uh a little bit, but we've actually seen this before and And I'm gonna talk about that, so in the mindset section, now, I don't know if you know this, but apparently WordPress is for suckers, and I am one of those suckers. I recently sent out an email about WordPress and why uh I think it's a smart it's smart to develop on a on a system like that and I got an email back from somebody who <laughs> essentially calling me a sucker. And so I want to dive into that email a little bit and I want to talk about the mindset behind it and why it's so dangerous and something that you should really watch out for because you know I, I was actually talking with my brother who that if you on my mailing list, you know it was my brother and some of his friends who uh that email was talking about who had initially kind of snickered at me about WordPress. Anyway, um I was actually talking with him about this, and as he noted and I can agree with, that's kind of a trend among in the IT world, and so I want to talk about that. And why it's a dangerous mindset that, again, we should should try to avoid. It's really going to hold you back, especially considering what we're going to be talking about in the trend section. In the tech section, I'm going to be getting into some flexbox examples. So if you're not familiar with flexbox, or you are but haven't fully learned it yet, then I'm going to be walking through in a a screencast where you're going to be able to see the code and everything. Um, I'm going to be walking through some examples of, of how to use Flexbox. So you'll definitely want to stick around for that. Also, in the freelance section, I'm going to get into how to write job proposals on Upwork that win. So I recently did a video on this. I'll let you know where you can find that video, but I also want to talk a little bit about it in the podcast as well. So we're going to be diving into that. And then, as always, we're going to be doing our weekly Q&A. So if you haven't subscribed to this show yet, be sure to do that. You could do so on iTunes at JohnMorrisOnline.com slash iTunes, on your Android device at JohnMorrisOnline.com slash SoundCloud, and of course on YouTube at JohnMorrisOnline.com slash YouTube. Also, this show is able to stay intact because of donations from listeners like you. If you want to become a supporting listener, you can head on over to JohnMorrisOnline.com slash Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And there's a number of different rewards over there. For example, I have Patreon-only courses that are available for certain levels of patronage. I have priority Q&A access. So if you have a burning question that you absolutely want me to answer, that's a good place to do it. And then, of course, you just help me keep the show running uh, with your support. So I'd appreciate that. So again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon. All right, let's get into it. You're listening to The John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Here's another great resource for you, ZipTask. Have you ever wished you could just jump on live with a developer and talk to them face-to-face before hiring them? If you could, there's no doubt you'd know whether you wanted to hire them or not by the end of that conversation. But instead, most freelance sites make you wade through a mountain of resumes and profiles before you ever actually get to talk to someone. Not ZipTask. ZipTask is all about speed. You can instantly connect with developers on all their devices and immediately start chatting about your project. No mountain of resumes, no guesswork, just a real-life person waiting to help. Even better, every audio, video, and text communication is recorded so your developer is held 100% accountable. No he said, she said. Plus, Ziptask works with only the best developers and uses both state-of-the-art technology and real humans to find and surface the top developers so you always have the best developer for your project needs. So to start talking to a real qualified developer in the next few seconds, head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash ziptask. That's Z-I-P-T-A-S-K to get started. Again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash ziptask to start talking with a real live developer in the next few seconds. Welcome back to the John Morris Show and In This segment, I want to talk about this growing trend of web design tools that we're seeing um, kind of grow in the, the advent of, of these sorts of tools. And what I sense from a lot of people that I talk to about this is the fear of those tools and them empowering clients to kind of build sites on their own and developers kind of going the way of the dodo bird. And so what this is, is again, there's more and more development, you know, as I see it, more and more development is morphing into not just coding, but knowing how to use different tools. So a tool like WordPress, or as I mentioned on a different or on a um, email in my email list, uh, one that I use called layers and you know, there's beaver builder for WordPress. And there's a number of different ones that are out there. There's static site builders. There's, I think it was like the, the grid was one that we've seen maybe a little bit, although I'm not necessarily saying I haven't used that one. I've seen mixed reviews on it, but anyway, the, there is this growing kind of market for these kinds of tools whose aim is to help clients themselves or help people build websites a lot easier without having to to actually know how to code. And I often get emails from people asking me about this, asking me if this is something to be scared of or telling me it's something that they're worried about. And I don't think that you should be. And here's why. We've kind of seen this before, actually, right? We've seen it in other areas. The example that I like to use is building a house. And, you know, back, you know, a couple hundred years ago, before the industrial revolution, we didn't have all of the tools that we have today. So, you know, we didn't have a electric saw, we didn't have a backhoe, we didn't have any of those things. And, but people still built houses, they just had to do it by hand, they had to do it with a handsaw, they had to do it, you know, with a shovel, and, and so forth. And, but they still built houses. So, as the technology advanced, house people that could build a house like that didn't go away. You don't see people, you know, you see some people, I guess, who build their own house, but there's still a very, very, very large market for someone who knows how to build a house, who knows how to use all of the, those tools. And it's never reached a point where you can just push a button and have a house built. Right, so I think this is similar to to what we're seeing in web design and web development. The difference between a hundred years ago and now in the advancement of the tools is that you can build a lot better house than you could back then because of the tools. I mean, you, some of the houses you see today that people own are like castles in the Middle Ages. Yet these aren't kings or queens; these are <laughs> just, you know, regular people, they obviously make good money, but it's not the, you know, someone who runs the entire country. And so it's allowed us to make, and, and, you know, people who, you know, I take myself, you know, I'm not some gajillionaire or anything like that, but the house that I live in, you know, 200 years ago, that would have been the kind of house that someone who was you know, either high up in government or extremely wealthy owned, right? So it's just allowed things to get better for everybody. And I think that's what's that. That is what we're going to see with the advent of these tools. It's not that there won't be an avenue for developers. It's that you as a developer will be able to build a lot better end product. So I see two paths forming here. For developers. And I think both are legitimate. The first one is kind of your hardcore coder who really will probably transition more into, instead of building the end product, will actually transition into building the tools themselves that create the end product. For example, you know, you take, um, well, I, I lived in a town in Iowa, Pella, Iowa, and there's a factory there called Vermeer. And what Vermeer did is they built uh, farm equipment. And so the farmer would then come buy the equipment from Vermeer and use it to farm. So there was still an avenue for the farmer, but then you had some the people who actually built the equipment that would do the you know the mach- machining and and building all the the steel work and all of that part. The who were really kind of deep into that technical side of building the machine, and then you had the farmer who knew how to use the machine in order to grow food. So I see the deep hardcore coders as like the, the, the person doing the machining and the steel work and so forth. And, you know, at that factory, <laughs> the people that do work there and know how to do that, they make really good money now. And, and you know, you could debate about whether that's what they really want to do, et cetera, et cetera. But if hardcore programming is really what you want to do there, I think there's always going to be an avenue for that. You just may be working more on building the tools. Then there's the other side of it, which is someone who is an expert in using the tools themselves to create something else. And again, I think both of these are legitimate. I don't think one or the other, as this progresses, makes you less of a developer. It just makes you different. Now, you could argue about the name, right? Whether someone who can't code is is a developer or not. We could go back and forth about the name. But again, is a builder less of a builder because they use an electric saw and not a handsaw? Or because they use a backhoe and not a shovel? I mean, you still have to know what you're doing. So not knowing how to code or knowing how to code gives you an advantage because you can actually work on the tool itself, right? Let's say I'm my grandpa was actually like this. My grandpa would do uh, steel work and so forth. Um, in, I grew up in a small town, Nebraska city, he would do steel work in that town and, and he would work on car. He'd do all, he'd work on equipment, tractors, he did all sorts of stuff. But one of the things he also did was build tools. And so he'd get a lot of people who'd come to him to have him build some sort of custom tool for something that they were working on. And if he was working on, you know, maybe somebody's car or somebody's tractor or doing some sort of steel work for somebody and in his mind, he thought, gee, it'd be nice if I had a tool that did, did 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 this certain thing. He was a welder, he'd just go build it. He'd go build the tool. So knowing how to do that is gives you an advantage, absolutely. And I you know, I would always recommend that even if you're gonna go the route of using the tools that you know how to code some, so that you can do that if you need to. But it's absolutely okay to use tools built by other people and you know this kind of goes into the mindset section that I'm I'm talking about coming up but you get a lot of people who will be kind of critical of that but th- at the end of the day what matters is the end product what the client cares about is the end product not necessarily the specifics of how it's built now that doesn't mean that I'm saying you know you could build something really crappy uh and it doesn't matter that's not really what i'm saying but a lot of these tools are just fine for and the the code and what they output is just fine it's not completely terrible to the point where you know you're you're making uh putting your client in a bad situation that's not the case now you might have people that try and convince you of that but it's just not the case so again it's okay to use these sorts of tools Uh, because at the end of the day, what matters to the client is the end product and you don't always have to make it so hard on yourself. So I bring this up for for two reasons. There's two things that I want you to get out of this. One, I want you to understand that going forward, what you're asked to do from clients may not always be coding and that that may slowly morph to where more and more you're being asked to know how to use a, a different array of tools. You may have one client that says, hey, can you build me a site with this? Another client, can you build me a site with this? Another client, can you build me a site with this? I actually was on Upwork the other day, kind of poking around and did a search for PHP. This is interesting. This is some of what sparked this. I did a a search for just PHP on Upwork. And I would say at that time of the top, the first 10 projects that were listed on them, I think six six or seven were WordPress projects. So in, in the PHP kind of category, most of the projects actually related to a tool that's built using PHP, not PHP itself. I found that very, very interesting. And I think more and more we're going to see that sort of advent. But there will always be a space... And this is the second thing that I want you to get out of this one again. Know that that's probably that things tend to be trending that way more and more. And then B or the second thing. Don't be afraid of it. You're not less of a developer. If you use a tool, there will always be people. This is the the critical thing for you to understand. There will always be people who just want it done for them. They don't even want to mess with the tool. Now. All you have to do to verify this fact is step outside of your maybe developer community where the the people you know are are developers like you and go talk to someone who knows nothing about websites. All right, Go to like say a local business in your area and you'll see how very, I mean, you have people who aren't even familiar with, you know, struggle to use email or Facebook. And these people are out there wanting to run businesses they need, they know now that they need a website to do it and so forth. And they don't even want to mess with it. Or you have people who may know some of that stuff, but they just, it's not what they love to do. So they just don't want to hassle with it and they'll hire people. There will always be people who just want it done for them. Um, And so there will always be a market for someone who knows how to use the tools and then the final thing is, using the tools can often be, and I would say in most cases probably is, smarter than coding it yourself. Uh, in the mindset section, I'm going to talk about an email I received, from someone who basically was calling me a sucker and an idiot because I use WordPress, and I wrote a follow-up email where this is exactly what I talked about: that is it smarter to use a system that you are the only one who developed it. You're the only one who works on it. You're the only one who supports it. And it only gets used on your sites and your client sites. That its usage is a very, very limited set of websites and its support development wise is just you. Versus a system that has millions and upon millions of websites using it it's supported by hundreds of thousands of developers it's got a company that has millions and millions of dollars behind it which one is smarter to use which one's going to be ultimately better for your client in the long run which one is going to be more likely to find any bugs or security vulnerabilities which one's going to have people constantly work on making it more efficient which one is going to have people who pour over every single line of code to make sure it's secure to make sure it's efficient to make sure it's written the best way it possibly can. Which one is going to have multiple iterations where it has major updates within a single year? It's going to be that latter one. And so for your client, it's the better tool in most cases. Now, the the first option where you code it yourself is better for your ego. But I don't think that that should be the standard by which you... You use to to assess what's best for your client is what feeds your ego the best. So, if you're someone who's sitting here screaming at uh, screaming at your computer screen right now, listen to what I'm having. W- listen to what I'm saying. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. Do what's actually best for your client, not what's best for you. But you're trying to pretend like it's best for your client. All right, so that's what I want you to get out of this and to know that this is a movement that seems to be happening. To pay attention to it, don't be afraid of it. And look, if you want to stick to hardcore programming, absolutely, just know that what you do may slowly start to shift to you building the tools, not necessarily you building the end product, the website or the application. And that, hey, at the end of the day, a lot of us would probably rather build the tools. So... All right, coming up next, as I mentioned a couple times, we're going to be getting into our mindset section, and we'll be talking about WordPress and how apparently WordPress is for suckers, and I am one of those suckers. You're listening to the John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Today's episode is brought to you by the Complete Web Developer Course by Rob Percival on udemy.com, where you can learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, mobile apps, and more inside one convenient course, so you can shortcut the time it takes to start earning your full-time income as a web developer. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive 85% discount on the course by visiting johnmorrisonline.com cwdc. That's johnmorrisonline.com cwdc. Welcome back to the John Morris Show and johnmorrisonline.com. In this segment, I want to talk about this, this idea or this mindset. So I recently sent out an email, and in the email, I outlined how I had this instance where I was hanging out with one of my brothers who happens to be in the IT field as well, and some of his friends or his coworkers, and they all work at an ISP. And so they're, you know... I mean these guys are they, they know what they're doing. They're IT guys that are that are pretty smart and have, most of them have been doing this a while. And so, you know, they're not dummies, they're not noobs or anything like that. These are guys that you know they they know what they're doing. And somehow along the way the the topic of WordPress came up. Now, I already know among developers that are especially more on the network side but even just the larger kind of programming community that when wordpress comes up almost always the thing that you immediately get is a snicker now i wasn't i actually wasn't the one that brought it up um someone else had because i usually know better because i just don't even want to get into the the conversation about it because it's just it it can be very very annoying because often people's perception of wordpress is based off what it was two or three years ago. And so a lot of the arguments you hear have already been kind of dealt with and taken care of and so forth. And there's just so much that you have to get into when you have that conversation. But it had come up and, and essentially the response that uh, my brother's co not necessarily my brother, but um, had given was to snicker. I mean, they they didn't just snicker, there was a conversation, but that was the general gist of the conversation, is they were snickering at anybody who didn't know how to use WordPress or used WordPress uh, for a number of different reasons. And so I'd written an email about telling this story and was saying that, you know, <laughs> you may think that, but WordPress is... I think the latest figure I've seen powers about 26% of the web, meaning about 26% of all websites run on WordPress. Uh, I'm going off memory on that number, so don't quote me exactly, but it's something like that. It's a very large portion of the web. In fact, I think it's the single largest framework or system of that, that is used on the web. It's the most common one of anything that's out there uh, from my recollection. So while well, you may snicker at it and and the point of the email was look you may look at the code and say this that or the other and snicker and and whatever but it powers 20 th- that large a portion of the web you can't ignore it and it's actually represents the market for web developers the wordpress community is a very lucrative market and so I'll work with it um you know because that's what clients want and you know it's not some <laughs> that i could hear people saying well yeah you know it may be what clients want but your job is to do the right thing for the client and if they're going to use a system that's has all these security vulnerabilities and this the code is junk and this that the other then you know you're just you're not doing what you're supposed to do and i i, I mean anybody who says that i would challenge them to okay go build go go build your version then Right. Anyway, so I got this response back to this email and it went like this. It said, if your figures are accurate, this goes to show the lack of education, motivation and willingness to go the extra mile. If you're communicating in search of work you can take me off your list, if I need someone to help, I'll find a real programmer. I have been doing this for 38 years and find those who have to have their code libraries developed for them are exactly why your older brother and friends snickered wordpress is for the suckers who look to idiots like you to make their plugins <laughs> and honestly this isn't the first time that i've heard this so i i'm always a little curious when i get an email like this especially when someone says they've been doing it for 38 years because i've actually worked with developers like directly with developers who have 20 30 years of experience and there's often a common thread that they tend to, and I'm not saying this about everyone, but in my experience, they tend to run their mouth. But when you actually go to look at what they've done, they have a really, really hard time in today's environment of creating applications or creating anything that's any good. So I just had a hunch. He had used an email address and had the a URL that wasn't like a Google or Yahoo. So I went to it to see if that happened to be his website and kind of looked through it and saw that, you know, he was kind of the IT person for that website it was a, a company and he was the IT person for that website. So assume that he had built that website. Um, it kind of led you to believe that anyway, <laughs> the website, I'm not going to link to it to tell you who this is. I don't want to dime anybody out like that, but Believe me when I say this website was horrendous. I mean, I see people who are just starting out in web development and have been at it for like a month who have better looking websites than what this guy had. And I find that's so often the case that you have these developers who have been doing this for a long time and they're so, they become so jaded and hard headed and that the way that they survive is by being. Hypercritical of other people and ignoring the fact that their own stuff is complete crap and they're not willing to grow because it's scary. It can be, there's a lot of fear that can be associated with new things coming out. And so the way that they deal with it is that they just lock themselves into this box and don't realize just how bad the stuff that they're creating is. I mean, it was bad. Not only not mobile, I mean, it it it's a site that in the nineties you would have looked at and went, Ugh, that's not great. Like it would have been bad in the nineties, and this is twenty sixteen. This was it was very, very awful. And normally I'm not hard on people for stuff like that because most of the people I deal with are new and they're learning. But you're talking about someone who has been doing this for thirty eight years, according to him. And now is being hypercritical of other people. I mean, it just shows this mindset that is extremely, extremely limiting. So why did I want to bring this up to you guys? One, you know, I I want you to be very, very careful of that kind of thinking, of being so scared of the new and what's coming and unwilling to change. Because technology is changing so fast. It's just a known thing. Humans uh oftentimes have a hard time with change and in the technology field it's changing so fast it can be incredibly scary uh, about what's coming am i going to be able to figure it out am i going to be able to do that and there's two approaches you can take you can either take the approach that this guy took which is to lock is to lock himself in this mental box, not learning anything new, and just be hyper-defensive against everybody else so that if anybody tries to attack him, he's already got a defense mechanism in place to deal with it. And never grow, never learn, ne- never get any better, never try anything new, and never advance. And your output will be junk. So that's one path you can take. Obviously, I don't recommend that path. Or the other path that you can take is to really be the opposite, to be open to it, to look at everything uh, and not necessarily have some hard-headed opinion one way or the other. Now, I do think it's important for developers to have a perspective, but you also have to be open-minded to what's coming. You have to be able to embrace that change and understand that the market's gonna go where it's gonna go. That's ultimately the thing to understand. Regardless of what you may happen to think, Ultimately, who decides where people, where things go are the end users and developers hate that developers want to control uh, as much as they can. And you'll hear, I, I, I promise you, I'll get comments from people who will say something along those lines of, well, you can't just do whatever the client, the market will go where it goes. Now, that doesn't mean that developers don't have some say in it, but ultimately end users are going to go are, are going to want what they want. And that's people using your clients' websites and then your clients as well. And so you have to be willing to understand that and move and adapt in order to keep pace with everything that's coming. So you can't be afraid of this kind of stuff. And as I talked about in the previous section with tools, not code, that's something, again, you can't be afraid of the fact that you know, 10 years from now, what a developer does for a lot of developers do is work with tools on top of the code, not the code itself. That's okay. Again, the example, one of the examples I used back there is, is someone building a house less of a builder because they use a backhoe to dig the the foundation and, you know, a skills electric skill saw instead of a manual handsaw. Does that make them less of a builder. No, they still have to there's still a ton that they have to do. It's just making their job easier. It's okay to make it easier on yourself. And tools like WordPress and the other ones that are out there will allow you to do that. So don't be afraid of it um and and, and be willing to be open to that and and embrace that change and the things that are coming. So I think more and more that As I mentioned in the previous segment, I think more and more we're going to see the advent of tools like that. I think there will always be a place for coders, but I think there will definitely is there's definitely a growing avenue for people who don't necessarily aren't like deep technical coders, but understand how to use the tools that are out there, how to put things together and understand the broader idea of composition of building a page, of building a, a cohesive site, of matching clients' needs to the function and the look and feel and so forth. There's a growing avenue for people who are experts at that and not necessarily the kind of deep dive coders that what you, you kind of have that mix of today. So choose your path. You could take either. Either is fine. If you want to be a hardcore programmer, go for it. Or if you want to be more of a builder and you're not making the you're not building the saw but you're using the backhoe and you're using the saw to build a house then by all means go for it all right coming up next we're going to get into flexbox i'm going to be showing you some specific flexbox examples this is a full-on screencast so you're going to be able to see all the code exactly what i'm doing so you definitely want to stick around for that you're listening to john morris show john morrisonline.com hey everybody As you probably know, I constantly harp on using content to help you grow your audience and build your credibility as a web developer, but your web presence is nothing without a great hosting provider. So if you haven't yet, get your website up and running with a fast, reliable, and well-supported web host, Bluehost, for less than 6 bucks a month. You can check it out and get Bluehost's best price over at johnmorrisonline.com. Slash Bluehost. Welcome back to the John Morris Show. johnmorrisonline.com. All right, this segment, tech section. We're going to be talking about Flexbox. Now, if you're not familiar with Flexbox, this is a CSS module, and the idea it's kind of a newer CSS module, and the idea behind it is it it's designed to provide a more efficient way to lay out items and to align them, to distribute space, uh, and so forth, and it helps solve a lot of common issues that you run into as a developer. And so it's, it as you'll see here, it can make some certain things that you try to do on a normal basis uh, a, lot, a lot simpler. So I have a few examples that we're gonna walk through to kind of give you an idea, uh, a little bit of how this works, some of the basics of how it works, and then s- some of what you can do to kind of spark your interest uh, to dive deep deeper into this. All right. So I'm going to walk through these examples. Now, the first one is just the standard. I, I call the standard usage. This is the way that when I know when I first looked at it, that I, I thought to use it. And that is just aligning kind of three elements across like this and having them evenly spaced across even sizes, etc. cetera. Now, normally when you do this you have to kind of go in there and finagle with this a little bit to get this to work right so what i want to show you is over with flexbox how simple this is so what i've done i'll scroll down the html real quick i've under standard usage i've just created a parent div with three child divs in it and so given this the class of parent and then the three child divs a class of child so very straightforward html there's a, a paragraph inside each one with a number of That box. So, very, very simple and standard HTML. But if we come up to CSS, now, you know, I I don't have to do anything with trying to figure out percentages and so forth. With Flexbox, uh, all I need to do is set the parent to display flex and then select my flex direction. So, in this case, I want it to flex. You can do horizontal. Uh, or vertical. So in this case, I'm doing horizontal. So I'm doing setting the flex direction to row. And then in the child, I set flex grow to one. So one is, um, it's not like a pixel size, it's it's really kind of a placeholder that you when you set it to one, you essentially want it to if all the child elements are set to one, they're going to be evenly spaced. If you set like two of them to one and one of them to two then that two the one the child element that you have set to two will be like twice the size of the other ones and so it's kind of a proportional value to help you distribute the size of your child elements so we set it to flex grow 1 and that helps it distribute now let me get just get rid of this for a second so you can see what these would look like uh by default so if i refresh this you'll see that by default these are all this is what you would normally expect and then you'd have to try and figure out the widths and percentages and so forth but with flexbox all you have to do is set it to flex grow like that and now these are all evenly distributed across there so that's a you know it's a really handy tool and really just even that basic usage <laughs> helps solve a problem that you know is can be kind of annoying as developer now the nice thing is that there's a number of other things that you can do so the next example is vertical centering so if you've ever tried to center something vertically you know how annoying that can be but you see here i have again my parent div which is this dark blue and then i have three child divs and these three child divs are centered vertically they're perfectly centered vertically so how do you do that with flexbox well I've come down here and again for this one I've created a new set of divs here. And the only thing I have did is added another class called center. So I still have my parent and child divs but then I've added a class of center so that I can target those. And up here, so they're still, uh, these boxes are still taking on all of the elements of the parent and child. So display flex, flex direction row, flex grow one, that's all still there. But then under center, I sent the parent to a height of 200 pixels. So I'm setting a specific height for the parent. So it's 200 pixels. And then I'm setting the height, uh, the main thing, uh, I'm setting the height then width, but the main thing is the height to 50 pixels. Now by default, this would, this box, these child boxes would be at the top. They'd be up here at the top and then there'd be a bunch of space down the bottom, but you can see that they're centered. The reason that works is because I've then set margin auto and it's it's uh, on all four sides, so it's on top and bottom as well. So if you do if you set a margin or a margin of auto on the top and bottom in a flex box, it'll go it'll center it for you. So just like with regular CSS, how if you set the margin to auto on the left and the right, you get a centered box. Here with a flex box, it works top and bottom as well. So you can perfectly center things, uh, not only horizontally, but vertically. And that's all you have to do. You have your explicit heights and then you set the margin on the top and bottom to auto and it works. So again, something that's really, really handy for vertical centering. The next one here is this justified. And so what this does is essentially, let's say you have four boxes here And we've set, if we come into the CSS here under uh, child justified, I've set an explicit width of 300 pixels. So let's say that you need to do that for some reason in your layout. So these are all 300 pixels. This is going to to justify them to to essentially try to make them fit. And so this will make sense when we do this. So if we come down here, you can see that now they the fourth box, because these are set to kind of an explicit height or width, it wraps this fourth box down below. And if we kind of squeeze this, you'll see that it then turns them into four across like this. And eventually it gets to a point where it puts them top to bottom like this. And so that's what the, the justified allows us to do. So if we come down here, you can see I've got my parent Uh, class again, and then I've just added justified uh, to each of the child, to, to all of these, so that I can target it. And if we come up in our CSS under justified, then we have the flex flow set to row wrap. And what that means is, flex flow is really a shortcut for flex direction and flex wrap. So the first one is the flex direction, so row, so horizontally. And then the flex wrap is wrap. So it'll it'll wrap them. And then we're setting the justify content to space around. So this, this uh defines the alignment along the main axis. So it helps to distribute the extra free free space left over when all the flex items on a line are inflexible. And space around means the items are evenly distributed in line with, uh, in the line with equal space around them. So, uh, we've set again, those are the two things that we have set here for the parent. And then in the child, all we did is we set some, we just kind of sized it out here so you can see it had a specific height and width, the padding and a margin. There's nothing flex box related in here. So it's all in the parent and that allows that to then kind of flow around like you saw as the screen resizes. So, You know, again, it's not something that you necessarily use on every layout, but if you if this is something that you need to do for a particular layout, you can see it's really, really easy to do inside of Flexbox. The last one here then is this navigation centering. So let's say you have a right navigation over here, and then as you get to kind of the mobile layout, you want to center that. Now I've done this and it can be quite annoying without Flexbox to get this to center how you want it to and 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 work kind of flawlessly across different screen sizes but you can see here with flexbox once we get to 768 pixels now it's even these are all evenly centered across here and then as we get smaller these will actually go down to a top to bottom view like this like you would see on a lot of um you know mobile on a lot of sites with with your mobile device now again Normally that there's a lot of code to make that happen, but with Flexbox, it's it's really pretty straightforward. So if we come down here for the HTML, we have just a, a unordered list with regular list items, nothing special here and it has a class of navigation. So this is a pretty basic HTML unordered list. If we come up here then under navigation, now there's a, there's a decent amount of CSS here, but most of it actually has to do with the styling. So we do list style none, margin zero. This is a, nothing related to flex box, the background color. Then we do display flex, and we do justify content, and we set it to flex end, which means the items are packed towards the end, which is why on the normal view, they're over to the right side, because they're all packed to the right side. Um, we have our uh, our styling for our link here. This is all. Normal. This does nothing to do with flexbox. So so far we've only had two lines for flexbox. Now we get into our media queries, and so we see at 768 pixels, which is kind of a standard uh breakpoint to target. We switch just uh, we switch this to justify content space around. And remember, with space around, it distributes the items are evenly distributed in the line with equal space around them. So it just change just tries to distribute them equally across the the vertical axis there, okay? And uh, because we've targeted this as a vertical, this will also work horizontally, by the way. Uh, Flexbox doesn't really, it's kind of direction agnostic. So this stuff will all work both vertically and horizontally. It so happens that here we're working with it vertically. So it just tries to evenly distribute them, right? So that's why when we go to if we get to this or oops this view this is that css that does that the 768 pixel media query okay so then as we get smaller we get down to 600 pixels we actually change this to flex flow column wrap so again flex flow is a shortcut or a shorthand term for uh, flex direction and flex wrap. So here we set this to column. Column is essentially vertical. So row is horizontal for flex direction. Column is essentially vertical. So here we've set it to vertical or column and we've set it to wrap so that they'll wrap uh lines will wrap to the to the to the next line. And so the rest of the CSS here is just colors and padding and border and so forth. This has nothing to do with the actual layout and, and flex box. So, when we set it to column wrap, then what happens is, as we've seen, as we get down below 600 pixels, then goes to a vertical alignment here, just like that. So, that effect, just like that, of being to the right in the normal view, being distributed once you get to 768 pixels, and then being vertical once you get below 600 pixels, that entire effect is done with what? One, two, three, four, five, six lines of code. That, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. It w- I guess I haven't looked at it, but I, in my head, my I imagine that without Flexbox, it would take a lot more than six lines of code to make that happen. So very, very cool uh, tool and Flexbox. If you haven't got into it, haven't done any learning with it, definitely something that that I suggest you get into. There's a lot more that you can do with it. There's you know, you can get really complicated and and uh, really fancy with it, but this should give you an idea of one kind of the basic stuff that you need to do to make it work and then hopefully inspire you to to dive more into it as well. Now I know I always get asked on these kinds of tutorials people want access to the source code I'm going to tell you going forward, the majority of my source code is going to be available over on Patreon to people. I have all my source code available that I have um, access to that I've created over the years for all my tutorials is now over on Patreon for people who are a supporter of the show at the $3 a month level or higher. So that's where this source code is going to be. And most of the source code going forward is going to be available there. As well, simply because I want to give people who are supporting the show on Patreon, um, I want to give them some sort of bonuses. And so the source code is going, to be, uh, is going to be what that is or one of the things that that is. All right. So if you want the source code, johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon, become a supporter of the show at the $3 a month level or higher, and you'll get access to this source code plus all of my other source code that's available. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into the freelance section. We're going to be talking about how to write uh, job proposals or bids on Upwork that will actually get you hired. And I'm going to be going through the framework that I use when I write my proposals back. It's a three-step framework. I've used it time and time again. It's one that I figured out going through the struggles of, of figuring out Upwork um, and and got me to the point where I was able to start really landing a lot of the jobs that I bid on um, and so forth. So I'm going to show you that three-step framework coming up next. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. So I just realized something. I'm always harping on how important creating blog content is for getting new clients to your web design business. But what if you don't have a blog and you're not sure how to get one set up? Well, Don't worry because I've just created a new tutorial on how to start your blog in less than 15 minutes. So in less than 15 minutes from now, you could have your blog up and running and creating content that's going to help you attract new clients for your web design business. In order to take this tutorial, you want to head on over to JohnsBloggingTutorial.com. Again, that's JohnsBloggingTutorial.com. Dot com. Head on over and let's get your blog started today. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. In our freelance segment here, then we're going to get into how to write job proposals on Upwork that win. Now, before I get into this, I just this was one of the things when I first started out on Upwork that I, I really had a problem with. It's one of the most frustrating things. If you've been on Upwork or Elance or Freelancer, it can be one of the most frustrating things because you'll go bid you know, on jobs and you'll write up a proposal, you'll, you'll think your focus will be on being accurate, being friendly, uh, you know, trying to give them the best value at the, at the lowest price, et cetera. And you'll go on there and you'll see one of two things and both are annoying. You'll either see that it seems like there's a tendency for the lowest bidder to win the job. And that you start to think, well, the only way I can win isn't because of my proposal. It's just I have to be the lowest price, which can be really frustrating. Then, or, and if this happens a little more rarely, but every once in a while, you'll see somebody who's on there and they bid way higher than everybody else. And then they're the ones that get the job. And so it can be really frustrating trying to figure out what is going on. How, why is it that, you know, these people, they'll they'll have this really high bid and they'll win. But then there's other, other ones like it seems confusing. And so uh, I spent a lot of time like working through this and hundreds and hundreds of proposals that I submitted trying to figure this out and was able to kind of develop a framework that has worked really, really well for me. So I want to share that with you. All right, so why is this so important? Well, you want to get to the point where you get lots of invites each day. You actually get invited to bid on jobs. Uh, by the time I kind of left Elance, um, I got to the point where I was getting probably 20, 15 to 20 invites a day to the point where I actually had to turn my availability off because it was working against me because the way Elance worked and you, if you turn down so many jobs, then... It was a bad thing or whatever. So many invites, it was became a bad thing. Well, I was getting so many a day that I just there was no way I could do every single one of them. So I'd have to go in and turn my availability off so that I wouldn't get these invites and it wouldn't hurt me. So that's the point that you want to get to because it's a lot easier to win a job when someone's actually invited you to it. Uh, but uh, you don't get there until you how learn how to build on what I call cold proposals and get hired and cold proposals are when someone doesn't invite you when you go out and search them out and you just bid on them and they know nothing about you that's it's a lot harder to get that job because chances are that person hasn't gone out and invited people and you weren't one of those people so either they saw your profile and there was something that turned them off or they just never saw it and so they know that they haven't invited you so I call these cold proposals And the thing is, is if you can get good at cold proposals and you can start winning cold proposals, then A, you're going to get more job history on on the freelance site and that's going to help you move up the rankings and that's going to lead to you getting more invites. And then if you get good at cold proposals and you use the framework that I show you and you get good at using it you'll win more of those warm proposals of those jobs that you're invited to as well. And then you kind of control your own destiny when it comes to the freelance site. So being able to win cold proposals, being able to go out there, find a job, bid on it without that person inviting you and actually get hired and win that job is really one of the kind of key skills of being successful on Upwork because it leads to a lot of other things that, that help you in the long run on these freelance sites. So very, very important skill for you to get down. Now, there is a framework that I use for doing this, and it's a three-step framework, and those three steps are research, uh, framework, and price, all right? So it <laughs> sounds a little weird because I'm using framework twice, but we'll we'll talk about what that is. So the first thing to do is to do some research. Now, I recently created a video where I show you, I actually go on Upwork and I show you where to research, what to look for, you know, how to find it extremely quickly. Uh, and you can find that over on johnmorrisonline.com slash proposals. I'll link to, I'll, I'll set up a redirect link that'll link you to that video. So johnmorrisonline.com slash proposals proposals, you can find that video where it's a screencast of me actually going on Upwork. But I do want to talk about this a little bit. So what do you look for when you're doing your research? Well, on Upwork, there's a lot of job proposals where at the end of their whole description, there will be questions that they want you to answer when you submit your proposal. That's the first thing that you should look for on a proposal. Why? Because those give you an insight into the most the things that are most important to them, the things that they absolutely have to be answered. They wouldn't have put them there if they they weren't highly highly important to them. So you want to look for those questions, and those should when when you find not everybody asks those questions, but when you find those questions on a proposal those are the things that really should kind of guide the way you look at the rest of the project so you want to look for those questions that's the first thing to get an idea of what's most important to them then you want to read through the proposal and I'll, i'm telling you 9 times out of 10 they're going to tell you exactly what what they want to hear they're going to tell you exactly how to sell them they're going to say i want somebody who knows how to do this, can do this, will do this, and doesn't do this. They'll tell you the criteria by which they're going to evaluate you. So you want to identify those things and write them down. Just jot them down. These are the things that are most important to them. So you want to do that research, and you don't want to just analyze the project. You want to analyze, this is the mind shift. You want to analyze the client. Now, I've also done another video. Again, I've been putting out a lot of videos on related to Upwork and so forth. I've done another video where I talk about how to research the jobs and how to effectively search for the right kind of jobs. And this, uh, that highly, highly affects all of this about making sure the client's going to be a good client. Um, and so when you, you're, you're finding jobs and clients who are good clients, who you don't have to worry about, you know, they're going to hire you, you know, they're willing to spend good money for, for good work. Then you can invest a little bit more time into your proposal. Uh, Because you know if you win the job, it's going to be a good client who will pay and they'll pay well, so it's worth investing that time. Now that video uh, is over at johnmorrisonline.com/slash/search. I'll go ahead and put that uh, redirect that link over there as well, but you can go there and that will show you how to search and find the best jobs and the highest-paying clients on Upwork. But once you do that, then you want to analyze that client and see what they're looking for. What do they want? Because you're going to then use that in step number two, which is the framework for writing your proposal. So I use a specific framework for writing the proposal. It's a three-step framework. So the first step in that is to build credibility. So I was fortunate enough to have worked with some really high-profile clients like Michael Hyatt, Lewis Howes, Ray Edwards, Inc. Magazine, Tim Ferriss, etc., So I can name drop a little bit. And look, I know in most circles, that'd be somewhat lame. But in this particular instance, if you can name drop, you absolutely want to do that because it helps build up your credibility. In people's minds, they'll say, well, if that person, if they know that person and they follow that person, they'll be like, well, if that person hired this guy, then, you know, he must be good because uh, they wouldn't have hired him otherwise. Right. So you can do some of that. But It's not necessary for you to have that, right? Because what you the research will tell you what credibility they're after. For example, I saw a job the other day where someone wanted an online PDF editor. This is actually an example I use in the video um, that I referenced. But they wanted an online PDF editor, and one of the questions that they asked was, "Have you ever worked with this? Have you ever worked with building?" these kinds of um, PDF templates before? And can you link me to some examples? That is is the credibility thereafter. Have you ever worked with them? And what are the examples? So it's not a testimonial from some well-known person that's going to convince that person. It's whether or not you've worked with those templates and do you have examples? Those examples are going to be the credibility that they need. If they look at those examples and go, wow, these are really good, that's going to be all the credibility that you need. So you really need to look through the proposal and find what credibility are they after? What's going to be the thing that convinces them that I am credible? And it's absolutely critical that you start off the, you begin your proposal and what you say back to them with your credibility, by establishing credibility. Because if you don't, they're not going to believe anything else that you say. They have to first believe you're credible and then they'll believe what you, what you say after that. In fact, if you don't put the credibility up first, chances are they're going to look through what you wrote to find that first, and they may miss the rest of what you said. So you're going to put it right up front, establish your credibility first, and then go into the rest of it. So first step, build credibility. Second step is demonstrate reliability. Now, Your job history, testimonials, portfolio, etc. will go a long way towards that. But in actually writing your proposal and your response back to them, the best way to demonstrate reliability is to show that you have an attention to detail. That's what they're going to be looking for. And how do you demonstrate and show them that you pay attention to detail? You call out specific things that they have written in their uh, job description. And you talk about those things. Because that's going to show that you read, not only read the, the description, but you read it in detail. So you don't want to say, hey, I'm reliable. That's not what you say. You show them you're reliable by showing that you pay attention to detail. And you show that by calling out specific things that they wrote in their description so that they know that you read it, you understand it, and you read it in detail. That's, that's the biggest way that you can demonstrate reliability in a job proposal. Right. There's only, you're very limited in what you can do to demonstrate reliability in that context. But that's the best way to do it that I found is to pull, pull out fine details of their description that makes sense for you to write back about in a job proposal and talk about those things. The final step in the framework then is to sell on value. This is how you become the one that gets hired at the higher pay level. Um, where everybody's bidding really low, but you're still, you're, and you're bidding a lot more, but you still get hired is you sell on value. Now, some people are uncomfortable with this. Uh, and again, I talk about this in the video, com slash proposals, but the way to do this is you need to, I, I think of this as like a splinter. You need to insert a splinter in their brain <laughs> or in their mind, which is to get them to think about this differently. Most clients go into this, how can I get the best for the least, right? And you need to, most people know that uh, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You need to play on that idea that I I would start off this third paragraph with exactly these words. Look, I know you'll probably get people who are going to bid on this project for a really, really low price, but do you really want to... Put this project in the hands of the lowest bidder? Or do you want to put it in the hands of the person who's most qualified to do it and do it right? You need to almost say that specifically because you need to put that in their head that them hiring the lowest bidder, them hiring the cheapest person, could actually end up being worse for them. And that it's worth them spending a little extra money to hire someone. Who they believe is the best fit to do that job. Now, you may not always be the one that they think is the best fit to do it, but as a general rule, you want them thinking along those lines so that you're not, you're no, when you do that, you're no longer competing on price. That's, you have to get them off of competing off on price. When you move them off of that, now you're competing on value and then. Then it's do you have the portfolio? Do you have the testimonials? Did you write the proposal in the way that I've described to demonstrate that you're the one with the highest value? Now you get them bidding or or thinking on which one is the most valuable. And then that's when you can get paid what you actually deserve for your project. So say those lines almost specifically uh, to get them to put kind of put that splinter in their mind and and really inject a little bit of fear about them hiring the the lowest bidder most people again if you use that term lowest bidder specifically i mean most people have already kind of accept that idea that you don't necessarily want things built by the lowest bidder you want them built by the most qualified and so it 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 usually hits people pretty hard and they start thinking differently about the project, and that's the best that you can do. It's not going to win you every project, but it's the best that you can do to get them off a price and get them onto thinking about value. So those are the three, you know. And then after that, of course, you go into talking about why you'd be the most valuable uh, person to hire. Why you think you're the most valuable? Uh, you're the one that's gonna has the most credibility to do the job, right? Not necessarily be the lowest bidder. So those are the three steps, build credibility, demonstrate reliability, and then sell on value. So that's research. That's the framework. And then the last thing is price. So how do you set the price correctly? And so I'm going to leave this one. You can go over to johnmorrisonline.com slash proposals. You can check out the full video there. Um, It's totally free over there. And I'll, I'll tell you exactly how to go through and bid your price. But there are three different, pri- three different kinds of prices. This is what I'll tell you. There's three different kinds of prices that you need to look at. And then you need to find where those kind of overlap to find the perfect price that you should put on your proposal. So I'm going to show you what those three different prices are, where to find them, and then how to bring them together to find kind of the overlap to find that kind of sweet spot for pricing the project. All right, so again, that's JohnMorrisOnline.com slash proposals. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our weekly Q&A. So I have a few questions here queued up. Also, as a reminder, uh, I'm giving priority access to anyone who is a supporter over on Patreon at the $3 level, I believe it is, or above. You can get priority access to the Q&A. So if you want to have your question answered first then you'll definitely want to make sure and head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon and become a supporting listener. All right, you're listening to The John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. John Morris here for the Complete Web Developer Course by Rob Percival on udemy.com. Now here's the deal with this. Do you ever get frustrated constantly searching the internet for tutorials to learn how to code? Are you worried that learning how to code is taking longer than it should? Do you just wish you could learn everything in one convenient place so you can get on with earning your living as a web developer? Well, that is exactly why Rob created the Complete Web Developer Course. Everything you need to know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, APIs, and mobile apps in one convenient course. And you know it works because Rob has over 183,000 students and the most five-star ratings of any course on Udemy. Now, here's the best part. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive, and this is just for you guys only, an exclusive 85% discount on the course simply by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash CWDC. So look, Quit pulling your hair out trying to find good tutorials on the web. Do the smart thing and hit up my man Rob's complete web developer course with the slick 85% discount right now. Visit johnmorrisonline.com slash C-W-D-C and you'll be all set. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. It's time for our weekly Q&A, and I have a few questions queued up for you before we get into that. Just a reminder, if you want to ask me a question, I am giving priority access to this Q&A for Patreon supporters over at JohnMorrisOnline.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you're, I believe it's a $3 and above supporter there, you get priority access to this Q&A, meaning if you ask a question there, I will answer those questions first. All right, so our first question comes from Genius Steven over on YouTube, and he says, I can see a day when we will no longer install apps on our cell phone anymore, but instead we will visit a URL like a website and we'll have an experience of a website that will act and feel like a native application. It will behave just as good and you can see an application natively installed on your phone. This is where I see things headed. What's your take on this? I don't know that I 100% agree that that, it'll be exactly like that. But I do think there is this melding of kind of mobile development and web development. More and more, those two things are kind of becoming synonymous. And so I think in that general sense, I agree with what you're saying that there more and more that'll continue to kind of meld together to where when you go to visit, say, a website or something like that, that the or, or you go to interact with some sort of company or something that the experience you have will be very very native now the 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 way that i think it's going to develop is i think it's going to be where more and more you'll see the languages and tools used for developing on mobile apps will be more and more compatible with web technologies and you'll see web technologies moving towards mobile apps a little bit to where you kind of find this happy middle where if you know how to build websites, then you can very, very easily make the transition to building mobile apps. So I, I kind of think that that's where it's headed to where it'll still be a native app because I think there are some advantages still to that. And and who knows, maybe that'll, that'll change, but it'll still be a mobile app, um, but it'll be developed with web technologies or web languages and and work just like a native app does so or well it will be a native app but it'll be developed with with web technologies now the reason I say that is because there's still a significant portion of the world that's on really slow internet and so I think there is still at this point and probably will be for a while value the value of having a native app that doesn't necessarily require an internet connection or a fast internet connection now I agree here in like say the United states where the 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 speeds I mean you got gigabit internet that's kind of starting to roll out the speeds are getting to the point where if you go to a web page and it's mobile responsive it'll respond you know it'll respond almost like a native app because the internet speeds are so fast but You know, that's going to be really, really unique to certain developed areas. You're going to have a lot of other areas where having a a, a native app that's not dependent on the Internet will still have value to it. I just think that I just still feel like the two underlying languages of the web and of mobile apps are going to kind of mold, continue to mold more and more together to where, again, as a developer, building a web page and building a mobile app isn't all that different. So that's where I see it going. Obviously, I have no idea. Uh, there could be something completely different that comes out. and We'll just have to see how it goes. And as developers, we'll just adapt. So, all right. Next question is from Thomas Stab on YouTube. And so it was in response to a video. He said, you haven't said anything about Microsoft.net and MVC. Is that a good direction? Um. So to be honest with you, I don't know much about .NET. I don't know. That .NET is ever going to be uh, a huge thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of the open source languages have a real, real big stranglehold on on the market. So I don't know if .NET's ever really going to be a huge thing. Maybe, and if so, at that point, then I'll learn it. But I just don't know enough. I don't know much about .NET. Now, in terms of MVC, you know, there's a couple of different. You know, if you're talking about MVC in the broader sense, right, because MVC was a kind of a specific, I would say, architecture for you know very specific set of, of software engineering that has now kind of been morphed into this broad overarching term that relates to all sorts of uh, software architecture. So if you're talking about the broader sense, well, then, yeah, absolutely. I've talked about MVC actually quite a bit in the past um, you know, done some tutorials on it and so forth. And I do think it's the way to go. It's, you know, it's how I build a lot of stuff. The team I work on builds a lot of stuff is using those kind of general principles and ideas. So I think MVC in the broader sense is a good way to go. Um, so the, the, I mean, that's my thoughts on, on that stuff. Like I said, I just don't know enough about.net to really, to say much about it. All right, last question is from Lottie Edwards over on YouTube. Says, I'm new to Upwork and I'm wondering, am I wasting my time? I have never worked from home, nor do I have that much customer service experience. Um, I'm a single mom on medical leave for major surgery and probably won't be released to go back yet. So I'm needing to get back to work. So if I could get some advice, please. So the one thing that sticks out to me about this is I'm not sure that web development, web design should be something that you should do or pursue as an interim type of setup. Now, I can't say here for ex- for sure if that's what you're saying, that web design, web development, because you just said you're on Upwork. Now, if you're doing something else on Upwork, you know some other sort of freelancing, because there's transcriptionists, there's all sorts of clerical stuff, and there's lots of things over there you can do besides web design, web development. I'm assuming because you're asking me if it's related to web design and web development. If that's the case, then I, I don't know if it's something that you can do as just an interim because it takes, you know, there's a there's a learning curve that takes long enough that you'll probably be healed and back to doing what you're doing before, before you actually learn to the point that you can start taking clients over there. So I'm not sure if that's the case. However, if it's just something else on Upwork and trying to get some freelance stuff over there, I mean, absolutely, you know, it, it does take some learn. There's a learning curve as well there, but it's a lot quicker, you know, and, and I've talked about some of this stuff uh, in previous segment about, you know, how to write job proposals and I've done a number of videos on working on Upwork and so forth. So go through some of that stuff and you can very quickly get an idea of what you need to do. Now that doesn't mean, this is the thing that people I think get lost on. It's like, oh, I know what to do now. So it's a guarantee, Nothing's a guarantee. Knowing what to do doesn't guarantee anything because there's still things that you have to do and getting those things, doing those things can still be difficult. So, you know, but it's a lot better coming from a place of knowing what to do instead of being confused and not knowing what to do, not having any sort of success. And just kind of giving up on the whole thing. So go through some of that training so you know what to do. And then you can better evaluate, okay, is this going to be a waste of time? Am I going to actually be able to do these things I need to do to start getting work um, before I get to the point where I'm healed up and so forth? So, I mean, I I can't tell you exactly because I don't know exactly your situation. But uh, I would say if if you're just looking to web design in the interim, I don't know if that's going to work out very well. However, being on Upwork doing something else, then yeah, if you're willing to put in a little bit of time and a little bit of effort to learn what to do and implement it and so forth, then I think you can have success and who knows, maybe you'll get to the point where you don't need to go back to what you were doing before and you enjoy freelancing and you can make enough money where you can continue to do that. So that's my thoughts on on that. All right, that'll wrap it up for this Q&A. It'll also wrap it up for this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe over on iTunes, johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes, or on your Android device at johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud, and on YouTube at johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. And if you would be so kind to become a supporting listener, I'd really, really appreciate it. It's support from listeners like you that allow this show to keep going and be free up here on YouTube. I have a lot of Great bonuses over on Patreon, exclusive Patreon-only courses, access to all my source code, priority Q&A access, and a whole lot of other stuff over there. So go ahead and check it out, com slash Patreon. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, quick question for you. Are you running a WordPress site? If so, then I want to recommend to you the premium WordPress hosting service, WP. Now, what makes WP Engine different than a lot of web hosts out there is that it's designed specifically for WordPress with advanced caching and security implementation to keep your WordPress website up and running and running as fast as possible. And we all know how important speed is on the web these days. So, if you're running WordPress and you don't have WP Engine yet, Be sure to give it a look. You can get their best price at johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine. Again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine, all one word. Check them out. You're going to love your WordPress hosting.